thank you for making me feel at home. I, I, although you have to stand up and do an ovation. Uh, I'm kidding. We don't, we don't do that for our preachers. It really is a joy uh, to be here, though a little rushed. 10.30, I was, I was right on time. I really was, just a couple months late. So I, apparently this is your summertime, so I'm grateful to God that I could be with you. I'm sorry that I missed the first part of worship of our Lord. I was able to partake in it as well. It, isn't it certainly well this morning? This is such a beautiful Lord's Day, and it is a good time to gather around God's Word. So let's turn to Judges chapter 3. book of Judges has much to offer to us as believers, but just by way of introduction, just again, thank you for your open-heartedness to receive me. Uh, I've known Joel. We've been neighbors in the same town. I've been living here since, really, since after college, graduated in 99, so came from Philadelphia area to land here. So I'm not a native, uh, and apparently you'll never be a native, even if you've lived here for 50 years, you know. Uh, so I'm used to the fact that I'm an outsider. I'm a Philadelphian, if you can't pick that up in my, my accent, if that is something to you. Uh, but my wife and I met at college, and we stayed here in this very town after Millersville graduating in 99. And we have five children, as, as uh, Kirk had mentioned. But we're so uh, just so grateful to share as, as like-minded bodies of Christ. Really, truly, Crossway Church and Grace Baptist. I have... So enjoyed my friendship with Joel and Scott over the years. Uh, and I can only, I, I, I only know this, that it speaks loudly of your love and care for Christ as well. Uh, that he's men who lead you, lead you well, as I know them personally. And I can attest that uh, they are good men of God. Um, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity and honor, great deep honor for me to, to step now into their pulpit. So thank you for opening your doors, opening your hearts. So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Ask the Lord's the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we, we do gather before the bonfire of scripture this morning. Lord, though it's a hot summer day, Lord, our hearts can remain cold and dull. And by the effects of our own sinfulness and the effects of this world around us, Lord, it has such a dulling effect on our love and our discipleship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather to your word purposely. Your people gather, whether at Crossway Church or Grace Baptist or across the world, we gather the Lord's day, Lord, to gather around the Scripture, to see again the, the risen, resurrected Lord and Savior, and to see the effects of His Holy Spirit, and to rejoice in the salvation that's been given to us, and to be reminded of the truths of who you are, our Lord and our King what your kingdom is all about, and the place you have given, granted each of us in your mercy, the place in your kingdom, in your family. Lord, please bless this dear congregation as we now go to your word, that they would be warmed, their hearts would be rekindled if need be, that you would grant in your kindness repentance if there are any here who are straying. And for each of us, Lord, that you would help us to shake off the effects of to slough off the effects of this world as we look now to Judges chapter 3. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this chapter of Scripture uh, will provide for us a, a picture, really, of much of what the book of Judges shows us. 
the book of Judges, you may be well aware, if you have read the scriptures, if you have read Judges before, it is an action-packed part of the Old Testament. There are many, many stories that are memorable. There's Samson who broke chains, who got his hair cut. There, is, there are many, many stories to, to children's delight. But there's also moments that we'll find in chapter 3 that kind of make you wonder, wow, that's quite graphic. <laughs> These things that are described for us in detail by our Lord in the book of Judges, they serve a great purpose. And chapter 3 of Judges, I believe, is going to help us, as the title of the sermon, from keeping from cozy in Canaan. I know that's probably not correct grammar, but keeping from cozy in Canaan. That's what I believe this chapter is going to, as as really all of the book of Judges, is seeking to drive home and press this point. That God's people must not settle. We must not settle, as the book of Peter would, would later reflect on that we're, we're exiles. We're exiles in, in the world that we live in. We're not meant to make this world our home. And certainly the temptation of Israel, as we'll read in chapter 3 in Judges, the temptation for us all, the besetting problem for us all, is to get real cozy with Canaan. And I believe what will be pressed down on us is that very point, that God would drive us from any coziness, that we would be those who are in the world but not of it. We would be those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and pursue this world for his sake, not for our own sake. So let us dive right in. This is Judges chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to start, and we'll be driving through this entire text. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I am reading from the English Standard Version, so I, I please forgive me if you're reading NIV. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not yet experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were the, for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Who of us enjoys a test? I've not met a soul. There might be some out here who enjoys sitting in front of a final exam or a midterm. You folks are quite a strange bunch. If that's you, or if you know someone like that who loves preparing for a test and loves putting pencil to paper, and even more so in the medical world, the triple C's, the CAT scan, the colonoscopies, or the catheterizations. Who of us would sign up for any of those? Who of us would think of any joy when we think about procedures that test? And there's really no such thing as a pleasant or an easy test to endure. And reading the book of Judges really is like witnessing someone fail a test. It's as though we've watched Israel be handed everything they need to prepare, everything they need. 
the Cliffs Notes. They've got the full version of how to study. They've been prepared. They have been provided anything that one could need in order to pass the exam that the Lord would set before them. And there's like a slow motion reel, a tape that plays that shows their slow decline and failure of this test. They just sloughed off preparation. They sloughed off anything that the Lord had provided them. And here they are failing the test. It's a meltdown in slow motion. That's what the book of Judges provides us with a window, a view to how Israel would respond after the passing of Joshua. But before we take up high saddles, right, on horses, looking down on Israel as though we ourselves would do far better given the same circumstance. No, let us understand that we too have the same inclination. So scripture is from beginning to end very clear on this point that we as a race are a fallen race. We are a depraved bunch. We are driven to and fro by desires and fears, some of those things that are out of control. And we need a Savior. That's certainly what is highlighted in and through the book of Judges. Is This race who is so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, this race, us, the Israelites, we need a Savior. So the book of Judges will, much like a full-body CAT scan, reveal to us. It will test us, it would, like all of God's Word. It reveals to us our motivations. It cuts right to it. It goes right through soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It cuts through those things to reveal the inner thoughts of man. So God's Word, through the book of Judges, will press this point. We're in the middle of a test. We're not wired to think that way. You and I don't wake up every morning thinking, boy, I'm in, I'm in the middle of an exam right now. But that is exactly what God's Word reveals to us. We are being tested. We're being tempted in, in this life to live as though each moment and every word and every passing thought or deed doesn't really matter, that those things won't account for anything. Humans have lived in ignorance for millennia this way, that what we do think and say today has no bearing has no purpose. We can just live as we see fit, detached, thoughtlessly from what reality really is. But Scripture shows us, no, no, no. We're under a test. We're being tested. And this certainly is the case in Israel's history. Leading up to the first judge, what we see here in verse 7 is, is the coming of the first judge, Othniel. And we're going to follow the first three judges that you'll see here in chapter 3, our, our text this morning. The three main points will simply follow these three judges. And the test is set. The pagan nations are remaining in the land. You see there in verse 6, look up. We read of the failing of the test. They're already beginning to put their pencils down. Their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So we're watching this slow motion, again, of the failing of Israel. But we read in verse 4, the purpose of the pagan nations, Canaan, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Hittites, etc., all these pagan Canaanite uh, groups being left in Israel. In verse 4, God tells us they were left there for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the test is set. The pencils are in hand. And the question is, are we aware of it? 
How will we go through our testing? How will we do under the test? How will our faith to be shown? We are God's people living in a Canaanite world. You are living in a Canaanite world. I am living in a Canaanite world. So how is the test to go for us? So here's my theme. Pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. I'll repeat that. Pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. So let's go right into our first point, following Othniel. Othniel, we need deliverance. The book of Judges kicks off in a series of 12 deliverers or judges in seven different cycles of oppression and deliverance all through to chapter 16, starting in chapter 3. So really for most of the book of Judges, we're going to be looking at the cycles of Israel falling into oppression. God, God punishes them for their sinfulness, for drifting and becoming cozy with Canaan. God punishes them, sends an invading army, and then he brings about a wonderful, glorious deliverance. And that cycle repeats seven times over 12 different individuals that are marked off as judges or deliverers. And here is the first of them, Othniel. We read in verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz. Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. I should get a degree for just saying that name 14 times. Kishan, son, or Rishathim. I mean, that, that's quite a... Uh, and then he follows it up with King of Mesopotamia. Try to say that three times fast, right? Here we're introduced to Othniel. In chapter, actually, in chapter 1, we're first introduced to Othniel, who ends up winning the hand of Caleb's daughter after capturing Debir. Caleb declares, whoever captures this pagan city, I will give my daughter. And so Othniel steps up to the plate, hits a home run, he delivers uh, the city, the Debir, into the hands of Israel, and he gets his bride. Well, here in chapter 3, we're, we're brought back. This military hero steps up again. God fills him with the Holy Spirit. We see this very clearly in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. So God sets aside Othniel to judge, to save, to deliver his people after they cried out. Now, we're going to see that there is a template, even in chapter 2, that's set for us. Chapter 2 ends up being a 
really a template or a preface to the book of Judges that tells us what's going to happen time and again, wash, rinse, repeat several times over through the book of Judges. And it kind of goes like this. The story will repeat itself where Israel gets cozy. They forget the Lord. They go after false gods. That's step one. Step two, the Lord gives them over in his wrath, in his wrath to their enemies. Step three, Israel cries out to the Lord in their distress. And step four, the Lord hears and sends a judge or a deliverer. Step five, there is peace in Israel. And then step six, the deliverer dies. And finally, that just repeats itself again and again. It really ends up becoming a downward spiral. It's not a nice, neat, wash, and repent, repeat cycle. It goes downward. It gets worse into chaos. By the end of the book of Judges, you can't help but to feel that you're drowning in human depravity. And again, we're not, we're not looking down upon Israel here. We're realizing this is the cesspool of humanity of which we ourselves belong, to which we belong. So in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, names and details are now placed for the first time on that template that provided in chapter 2. Where now it's Othniel, it's the people of Israel and the specific details to the situation. And we hear in verse 7, people forget and they forsake the Lord. Sure enough, they forget. They get cozy and comfortable in the land of Canaan. And they take on Canaanite gods. They run off to Baal, to Ashtaroth. And in verse 8, God in hot and holy jealousy pours out his anger upon Israel and punishes them. And he raises up. Hushan, Reshaphim, the king of Mesopotamia, and empowers him. Really, God is the one who finances this foreign enemy. Do we realize that? It is God who brought about this power to take over Israel for his own glory and sovereign purposes. God finances this, this power. And then God carries it out and punishes Israel. And then we see that the Lord then takes pity on Israel... In verse 9, second half of verse 9, and this is, this is frankly astounding given the fact that if we think about what is the nature of Israel's repentance in this cycle of oppression and deliverance again and again, we can see clearly from the text that their crying out to God for deliverance was not one of godly sorrow, of, of wanting to know Yahweh and to serve Him truly with a full heart. They're crying out to Yahweh was one who was caught in the consequences, the bitter, painful consequences of their sins, and they cry out in grief and anguish and that. Not because their, their sins have so wronged a holy God who has loved them, who has provided for them. No, it's not that. So it's frankly astounding that God would take pity upon Israel. Their performance is so pitiable, so pathetic. That God would show pity to sinners. And yet he does. The Lord responds by sending Othniel, who again was introduced to us in chapter 1. And the, the people rest. It's interesting. They enjoy the shade of Othniel for about 40 years. Their, the consequences, the, the heat of their consequences of sin. Othniel provides that nice little arbor, that shade. But then that shade dies and goes away. And then... We see in verse 11, the second half of verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. And in verse 12, repeat. We go right back into the cycle. They forget, 
They move on back to the Baals, to the Ashtaroth, and on and on the story goes. And one of the points here is Othniel, in verse 11, it's very clear to us, that Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. His messiahship was a temporary messiahship. His salvation had an expiration date. And he dies. It was a temporary relief for Israel. And now the story of Othniel reminds us that mankind will always be true to form. No matter where you take a core sampling of the human condition, whether it's in the time of Israel, under the judges, or if it's at the time of David and the time of kings, or if it's the time of Moses, or whenever and however you take a core sampling of the human heart and condition, you will always find us to be true to form. Always. We're a sordid bunch and we remain that way. You dig down and you'll find that human patterns and proclivities do not change. We wander from God. And this story certainly reminds us this, that Israel's problem, our problem, remains the same. It's worldliness. We are tempted sorely. You are tempted. I, I, I don't know if you know this. You are tempted sorely by the same worldliness that Israel experienced throughout the time of the judges. You are tempted. You are being overrun possibly by this very thing. Praise the Lord that he does not leave us to our idols. He does not leave us to be comfortable in Canaan, but he sends troubles. He sends deliverance. He sent his only son. So let's be clear here about worldliness. If I'm going to be bringing up the subject of worldliness, worldliness is not just don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with guys or girls that do. Okay? That does not summarize the, the threat of worldliness in the human condition. That is not what's summarizing, certainly, Israel's problem. Worldliness, rather, is taking matters into our own hands. And all of us do this. It is seeking our fulfillment on our turf, in our timing, on our terms, with or without God. Because really, at the end of the day, what I'm really interested in is not God and His glory. It's my fulfillment or it's my relief from my sufferings. I am willing to pursue relief from my sufferings with or without God. Because what I really want is relief. So I'm willing to go at this, you name it, and humankind has done it, to pursue that kind of anesthetic from our sufferings. And we understand, don't we? We're a suffering people. We understand the effects of the fall. But worldliness will pursue whatever it desires, relief or joy or comfort or pleasure. We will pursue those two things with much gusto, with or without God. Because ultimately we don't want God. We want this or that. That's what worldliness is. It is seeking comfort, joy, pleasure, or relief apart from God. That's worldliness. And we can certainly see and understand and feel really empathetic. We ought to feel very empathetic with Israel's condition because you and I, brother and sister, friend, we share the same problem. So pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on 
Christ. We're not dealing with idols of stone or wood today necessarily, right? We're not dealing with the Canaanite gods of Ashtaroth, Baal, or Enoth, who we'll be introduced to later. We're dealing with, I want my fulfillment, I want my relief now, and I want it, and I will get it in whatever way that I can. That is what we're dealing with. And we can justify these worldly thoughts and tendencies because we can say things like, God just wants me to be happy. God doesn't want us to be sad or suffering. And therefore, we conclude that we can then reach out. We end up overreaching, going for our pleasure or relief without a thought or care about what God himself thinks. We just assume. And I think that's part of the the dumbing down of worldliness is that presumption. The presumption that assumes that because it'll be good for me, it feels better, it must be from the Lord. And I'll go get it. And we almost fill in the blanks without really asking God for the answers. So with this in mind, where might you be drifting off into worldliness, into worldly thinking? Are you pursuing, are you here this morning, pursuing relief from your affliction? without thought of God? Are you thoughtless in your pursuit of pleasure? Even just the idea of, of, of going off and, and binging on entertainment or the idea of, of seeking some sort of physical pleasure that clearly Scripture tells us not to, sexual immorality. These are all worldly things that we pursue without God. So where might you be tempted? Drifting press of God's word calls us to quit our drifting. Instead, call on the name of the Lord. Let's go to Christ. So, let's move forward here to Ehud. Ehud, we walk through Othniel, now Ehud, where we're going to relish our deliverance. Because God has provided deliverance. In this story in particular, the author of Judges is going to help us to zero in on to just how great is our deliverance. And I love how the, the author takes the freedom to focus on each deliverance in a specific way to help highlight the goodness and the mercy and the power of God in a different way because truly God is a diamond, infinite in facets, infinite in glory. He need, we need to see him in different ways and different angles to be able to be awed again. And that's what the scripture certainly provides us and that's what the author gives us in the story of Ehud. So let me read Ehud's story starting verse 12. You ready? And this is one of the more detailed, I just want to warn you, one of the more detailed and violent stories in the Bible. Uh, And let's read. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. It was about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. 
When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they had saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not still did not open the doors of the roof chamber. They took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now, the temptation we might face at first is to take out the Lysol spray, clean this up a bit, And wonder why, why such gross detail to even get to the point of describing how the blade went in and the effects, the after effects of the entrails and the dung. Why such detail? Well, I think if we're going to understand and get the punch of what is in this, we've got to read this as an Israelite would have read it. And we've got to take on, in a sense, the mindset of an Israelite. And in gross detail, think about it, in gross detail is provided for them, the Israelites, the routing of the power that had kept them in subjugation. It's the equivalent, you think about it, if you think of like a concentration camp survivor would read and then reread the, the, the headlines of Hitler committing suicide. The same kind of effect of a relishing, a rejoicing in, look what God has done. This mighty king, Eglon, mighty and fat apparently, is now dead in a pile in his throne room at the very seat of power. He's dead. And they would read and then reread this very account to relish in the deliverance of their God. God has delivered his people with great power. And Moab, the king of Moab, stood no chance. So this, if you think about it that way, I think you can then understand why specific details are provided. You know, it helps us to relish. This is what God does to his enemies. This is what God did to deliver his people. 
Now, a few details just to consider from this account. Verse 12, it's a very important word. Look with me. And the people of Israel again did what was evil. It's a very telling word, a small word, but a telling word. And we've been saying it through this message. Israel is back at it. Dogs return to vomit and pigs go back to mud. And Israel is back to their ways, their idolatry, to their worldliness, cozy with Canaanites. In the second half of verse 12, we read that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Again, the Lord finances this. The Lord presses Moab forward. And the militaristic takeover, the promised land, God was its architect. God, Yahweh, the one who loves his people, is the one who sent Eglon to them to destroy them, to capture them, to enslave them. God is sovereign over every human being, big or small. And the book of Judges is not ashamed on that point. God did this. God did it. Judges makes that clear. Second, really the third point of verse 12 is the purpose of Eglon's strengthening was not just for Eglon and Moab's good, as though God had at his heart the good and the, really the kingdom of Moab. No, they're not his people. He raised up this foreign power for the good of his own people, Israel. This was for the good of Israel, that Eglon was raised up to discipline his people. And therefore, verse 15 shows us this unlikely savior, that God raised up this left-handed man, which is in ancient times an unheard of, certainly thing. And this left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, the least of the tribes. And true to form, God shows us from beginning to end, salvation is from the Lord. And he's willing to defy all expectations. And then verse 29, again, the cherry on top is that God's deliverance is so profound. Not only was Eglon killed off, left in a heap, but 10,000 Moabites, able-bodied in very clear terms, the scriptures tell us these men were no weak warriors. These were strong able-bodied Moabite warriors and 10,000 of them left for the birds of the air to eat and feast upon. God's enemies were leveled in this account. And that's the cherry on top. Not a man escaped, tells us, the scriptures tells us. About 10,000 Moabites were slaughtered. Now here's, that's that's quite a deliverance that's described for us in the book of Judges, chapter 3. But I want to pause for a moment and consider our deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. The judges of Israel, Othniel, Ehud, and as we'll read in a moment, Shamgar, these three men all met the same fate, as well as all of the other 12 or so judges. They all met the same fate. They died. They went to dust. Their grave sites have been long forgotten. No one knows where they're buried. And even if we did know, their gravestones would have worn out. We can't read when and how and where. We know nothing of the men's of these people's locations. They're done. Their graves are long forgotten. Their deliverance also had an expiration date because their deliverance, their judging of Israel only lasted so long as they lived. And they're gone. Therefore, the effect of their deliverance was done as well. Now, Jesus Christ gives us believers something truly to relish and to rejoice about. A deliverance that that far exceeds what we read of, as glorious as this deliverance may have been through Ehud, or Samson for that matter. 
or any other Old Testament figure. We have a salvation, a deliverance in Jesus Christ that far exceeds what we read here in the book of Judges. Because Christ died, our deliverer died, yes, but then he rose again. We don't know his grave for a different reason. We do not know the grave of our Savior because He's not there. He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, where He shall come from that place to judge the living and the dead. He is in bodily form, our Savior, in human form, seated in the heavens. And He one day will break open the clouds, just as we sang, Lord, haste the day, right? When the clouds shall be rolled back as a scroll, Jesus will descend. Right? The trumpet will sound. Our Savior, our deliverance is not a temporary deliverance. There is no expiration date to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not a time or a trial or a temptation that you're facing that somehow nulls or makes void or expires what Christ has accomplished. What Jesus did is permanent and it is perfect. There is no end to the salvation and deliverance that Jesus Christ has procured through His precious blood. There's no end to it. Its power is infinite. And our needs, as great as they may be, as depraved as your heart may be, Jesus Christ is more than a match for you and for your sinful, slothful heart. Jesus Christ in His power, in His gospel, there is no match. And it would be important for me to point out and make sure every soul here this morning that you know that you are a Christian. I want to be very crystal clear here. Just because you're sitting here does not mean you're a Christian. If you woke up this morning thinking it's a good, good idea to go to church, I rejoice, that's great. But just because we all go to church does not make one a Christian. What makes one a Christian is that you have trusted personally in the person of Jesus Christ as your deliverer from your many sins. If that is you this morning, you have not trusted, I would call you to repent. I would urge you to believe the good news of Jesus. He died, He rose again, He is seated on high, and He rushes in to save lost sinners in a very dramatic fashion. I would call you to repent and to believe in the gospel. So, we have come to Ehud to see that our deliverance is to be relished. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. You think about it, communion is a way in which believers are supposed to relish and remember what our Lord has done. And it's not just the kind we just eat a cracker, drink the juice, and let it be done. It's, it's God feeds us spiritually by His grace as we partake in faith in the Lord's table. He feeds us. I would encourage you, next time you as a family, of ch- a church family, partake in communion, know that the Lord is feeding you personally, calling you to relish in what He has done, His deliverance from our sin. And He certainly feeds us by His Word as well. And we remember what He's done, His deliverances through Scripture. And these things feed us. And the good thing about as we feast on God's Word, as we feast through the Lord's table, as we feast together in fellowship, the plastic alternatives this world provides appear for what they really are. 
Spiritual cancer causing ugliness. The world has nothing to offer. The relief we long for is nothing if it's apart from Jesus Christ. And as we feast on God's Word, as we go to the Lord's table, as we fellowship one with another, we're reminded that truth. I don't want relief if I don't have Jesus. You can have your relief. Give me Jesus. That's what we call each other to. And that's what the Lord's table, what God's Word and fellowship does. You can have all the pleasure, pornography or whatever it may be. You can have all that, but give me Jesus. That is the response of the Christian heart. And that's what we do for each other. We help one another to raise that voice together. Amen? That's what we're here for. And finally, we look at the third and real quick point here, Shamgar. Small deliverances matter to God. And we have one verse... It's very short, and then we'll be out. Thank you for your, your attention this morning. You're doing great. You're passing the test of staying awake. So that Shamgar is a small deliverance, but it matters to God. We read in one verse, after him, he's regarding Ehud, after him was Shamgar, this is verse 31, I'm sorry, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. What can we draw from this? I mean, this is quite a snapshot. It's, it's a tiny picture, not much information. But there is, and it's interesting, even this small verse, there's enough hints to give us something to work with. First is the fact that he's decisively not Hebrew. This is Shamgar, the son of Anath. Shamgar was not a Jewish or Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name. And the son of Anath, and Anath is a title. Not that he's literally the son of Anath, because Anath was a Canaanite goddess of war. So here is a title given to this man, Shamgar. Likely either he's in the military and has been given this title, the son of Anath, or he is a priest of Anath. It's quite a strange deliverer God has raised up in verse 31. Not a Hebrew, likely a pagan, and not even pretending to be Hebrew, okay? This guy delivers Israel. So it's not the stuff of godliness. He's no Nazarite. He's not pure Israelite blood. He's, he's not even pretending. It's a very unlikely deliverer. He also saved Israel, it says. He also saved Israel. And this is likely right around the same time as Ehud. It says, after him, Ehud was Shamgar. That doesn't necessarily mean in, uh, in time frame. It it's just talking about in order of the judges. We're talking about likely the same time frame as Ehud delivering from the hand of Eglon. We're having also this small deliverance occurring using this pagan Shamgar. So Shamgar uses an ox goad, which is a metal, really it's a wooden uh, stick, with a metal tip that you'd use to, to, to prick the, the oxen or the animals. He uses that thing <laughs> to kill 600 Philistines. It really is kind of a preview of what's to come in the, in the eight, really the archetypical uh, deliverer who is Samson, which really most of the book of Judges dedicates to that story, the biggest one. And this man kills 600 Philistines with this stick. And Shamgar, we're dealing with a local deliverance. We're dealing with, not, this is not a deliverance of tens of thousands, uh, you know, where, where Ehud had his 10,000 Moabites and he kills off the very the 
core of Moabite power, King Eglon, the fat and mighty. We're talking about a man who killed just 600 Philistines, likely in a small region or section of Israel. So we're dealing with a local problem, okay? It's a local problem in Israel, and God yet hears the cries of his people in that area, and he sends Shamgar during the time of Ehud. And this should encourage every believer. It's not as though God is only ever focused on the big picture, that he loses sight of our local problems. It's not as though God is a shepherd who only sees the big needs of his big flock. No. He takes notice when one goes straying. Our Savior sees you in your local personal problems, in your, all of your temptations, all of your afflictions. Your Savior sees you. He takes note of you and He will provide for you. That is one great hope we can take from Shamgar, from the story that God provides us. That the Lord carefully attends to all of his little ones. He carefully attends to you. Isn't that beautiful? That the Lord watches. He sees you. He is with you by his spirit. He has promised all this provision. He has promised his protection. And he will one day deliver you. That means into his presence. Or if that means delivering you from your idols and your temptation to seek relief without him. Whatever it may be, the Lord will see to it that you're kept safe in His power and by His grace. So let this comfort all troubled saints. Anyone who doubts or feels lost, it's almost like you've been lost in the, in the big picture. You've been lost in a world full of big things. The Lord takes note of our local troubles. And He loves us in them. He cares for us. God is deeply concerned with you. And he's deeply concerned with me. He loves us. God orders our specific troubles. Let me think about this. God orders what you're going through. God designed it and gave it to you. And he's going to then give you the grace to sustain you through it. And maybe one day also to deliver you in this life. And if not, he'll continue to sustain you until he returns or until you're taken home. One or the other, he will be faithful. He loves us. So we can rejoice that God takes pity on his people, great and small, local and on the large scale. He takes pity. He hears us. So the test is on. The test is on. Are you paying attention? Because the test of Scripture in Judges chapter 3 is to show us, are we getting too cozy? And I would encourage you to consider your troubles, your trials, are the very things that God uses to help you realize where you might be becoming cozy and to reveal to you more and more your need for Jesus Christ and how much He has provided for you. You don't need this world. You don't need relief without Jesus. You need Jesus, and in Him you will find all that you need, including relief. Okay? So pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you come to us in mercy and pity and love and with power. Lord, you will never leave one sheep to go lost and stray. 
you will always watch after every single one of your sheep. And I thank you for that truth and that fact, Lord, that that should land on our hearts in in a wonderful, comforting way. Lord, that we're not forgotten by you. You have never lost sight of us. You have never let go of us. For those who belong to you, who have confessed their need for you, and who believe Jesus, you will never forsake. You will never let go. You will always provide. And I pray for any here who are drifting, who are being tempted by this world, or seeking relief or pleasure without you, with or without you, I pray you would help them to repent, to see that and to return back to their Savior, to their Deliverer, to our great God. Lord, we love you, we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.